Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor-writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity and, of course, pleasure. Welcome to Season 4. We're kicking off with a mini-series on parenthood. I'm pregnant with twins and finding mainstream narratives about pregnancy and motherhood pretty narrow. Where are the stories about trans people giving birth? What about the choice to be child-free? And what exactly does a doula do? I want to open up the stories we hear at these pivotal points in our lives. As a GP, I have rather too short conversations with people at these defining moments. This was an opportunity to discuss the decision to get pregnant, to try again after miscarriage to challenge how the society you brought your child into would treat them and you, and have a deeper look at the way our health system handles pregnancy and motherhood as a whole. This is by no means an exhaustive set of interviews, but we hope it's a bold start. Candice Brathwaite launches us into our brand new season, and what an interviewee. She's the Sunday Times best-selling author of I Am Not Your Baby Mother. It's part memoir, part inspirational guide exploring childhood, pregnancy and what it's like to bring black children into a racist society in which black British women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. We talked to Candice about the kind of motherhood that was peddled to the women of Brixton and how her husband has been knocking the absent father stereotypes on the head. We discussed the shocking disparity of healthcare between black mothers and other patients from pain management to mental well-being. And how more black women are liable to be picked up under the Mental Health Act as being a danger to their child, even during childbirth. And why her wardrobe collection is more than about looking good, but a radical act of self-care and black feminism. I think Gen Z are the most activated generation I've ever seen. Like, they fight for everyone and anything. So the hope is that as Gen Z have kids, the dial might shift a bit. The real problem we have now is that bigots, racists, fascists are still having children. So we still have that problem because racism and all these issues is not an an issue with the older generation. Like, you know, my four-year-old was racially ostracised at school by another four-year-old. So I tell everyone I'm not going to see a post-racial society in my lifetime. I don't think it's going to happen in my kids, but I'm willing to put in the work now um, for maybe my kids' kids' kids. Maybe. It feels like a sci-fi story where it, or a <laughs> fantasy story where actually yeah, the work is done by your forefathers. Yeah. And actually, you are the four mothers or fathers, just, just yeah. me, or whatever term you want to use. I mean, you're the you're going to be the ancestors. Yeah, completely, complete. Like even, I get goosebumps thinking about it. But I say it in my book. Like my dad wanted to be a writer, but he just did not see that as a reality. So for his kid now to be a Sunday Times bestseller, that's like the shift on the dial. You know, like progress um, is happening. And I've seen Michelle Obama a couple of times live and she always says progress isn't linear either. You're going to have dips in this journey. You're going to have moments in history where you're like, well, we were doing so well. What happened there? And, you know, in reference to, say, like a Trump era, I think those things need to happen to remind us that we're nowhere near done fighting. Like there's still so much work to do. I was just thinking about when I was reading your book, um, mm. because it's relevant also to, to my sort of family, um, mm. the importance and relevance of community for mm. black families. I mean, just sort of Jane Austen used to refer to, it, I think it's society. 
Mm. And actually you had to behave in society. You had to be seen in society. You had a standing in society. Mm. What is the importance, do you think, for black families? I believe a massive issue in the black community, but most communities of colour, is respectability politics. This idea that you cannot say, you know, if your grand's calling you fat, you can't tell her off about it because she's older than you and there is just this hierarchy of respect. You can't come out as gay. You can't say if an uncle's abusing you because this is how we do things. And more to the point, family business is family business. You don't take things like an abortion outside of your house are you crazy because god forbid the world be able to poke holes in an already fragile community and that's the thing um the black community is really fragile because for centuries we have been sold and traded and weaponized and violently attacked and so i understand why my community thinks things like respectability politics are going to close some gaps. But I think it's really harmful. And so a book like mine, I just want to remind, especially these young black girls, that the idea of the black community isn't a hard and fast rule. And you get to be flexible about how you define your family and your community. I think that reflects very much my experience. I mean, I, I recognise I'm not a black person, but I'm a person of colour. And as yeah. such, um, I recognise the importance of putting on a brave face, making sure there was no cracks in your armour that mm-hmm. could... Because obviously what you were, you, you were other already. So actually yeah. you don't want to be a shameful other. You don't mm. want to prove that actually the, all those white people were right about you. Mm-hmm. And they were right about the fact that you are lesser. So mm-hmm. you would dress as beautifully as you can. Uh, you know, I just remember those beautiful sort of Windrush photographs of these amazingly sharply dressed men coming mm. from the you know, Windrush boats, beautiful like hats and, and, and lovely yeah. suits. And you're thinking, what must they have felt like? You're invited here to be part of something. You're, you're, you're sold this idea of mm. coming to Britain will be amazing. And actually it's abuse in the streets and mm. you being the bottom of the pile. Mm. Um, and then you realising that actually your community has to hold it together because if you don't show this face, then they've won. Yeah, completely. I was thinking about your journey from when you first went into blogging and then obviously into writing your book and how the community, the black community, responded to you putting yourself out there. Do you know what? Oh, not very well. So the black women on social media, just as I decided to use social media as this tool, they're a little bit older than me, 40s, um, late 40s. And so now retrospectively, I can say their anger might have been protection or Mm. them trying to be like, oh, no, 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 no. What are you doing? And I will say that there are so many of them who were perhaps friendly to start with as the years have gone on and I've gone on to do other things. They have since distanced themselves. And I I knew that was coming. This is the thing. This is the thing about even being a semi-successful black person or even person of colour. I don't only have to fight white supremacy. I have to fight the fears of my own community. I have to fight the jealousy or the crabs in a bucket mentality, which was a direct result of white supremacy. Because the idea is now that if one of us is glowing up, everyone else has to starve. We cannot all be catching sunlight at the same time. And I'm really aware of that. And I'm human. And sometimes my ego does get the best of me. And I'm like, well, why does this person dislike me? But it's so much more than that. It's because you've never seen such a frank, young black woman. And I am young. You've never seen it. And I understand how seeing it and then also seeing it in the terms of the world win is very unnerving for so many people. Because the lie has always been, you have to be submissive, you have to change yourself, you have to appropriate, you have to speak like this, wear this wig, dress like that, and only then will you perhaps get to live a life that the world sees as successful. And I've perhaps gone the complete opposite way about it. I talk shit, I wear what I want, Wigs are really hot and itchy, so I can't be fucked with that either. And so to see what the white world has said can never do it, do it, I get how 
there is a little bit of animosity there. And equally, have there been a rush of young black women pleased and relieved to see themselves represented up there? Oh, yeah, completely. Completely. I would say, like, 25 and under are all for it. They're like, more, yeah, say these things. There are so many DMs and emails where younger black women are like, this book really is going to help me sort some stuff out. I'm going to be able to table some really painful discussions. And that's why I wrote that book. I absolutely knew that in some way publishing this would make me a pariah to someone. Oh, God, I knew that. Oh, but I can't be fucked because I've already had this really hard uphill struggle. And so if in the interim I get to free some people, then that's what it is, essentially. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and it's totally worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing with the Pleasure Podcast at the moment is we're doing this um, sort of mini-series on on motherhood. Mm. Um, Partly selfishly, because I'm pregnant with twins and feel like there's very few conversations about motherhood in a diverse way with lots of different perspectives, whether that be class, whether it be race. But one thing that seems very clear to me, and I wonder whether this and I'm at great pains always to say, Mm. I would never compare my experience with yours. Mm. Um, And I think that's really important (laughs) to say as well. (laughs) But what I have noticed is that when I'm trying to find a community of mums or role models, or um, I suppose I'm looking at Instagram, I'm looking at Mm. those baby books, and there is a particular image that is peddled to me, Mm. and it is is all white women. It is all white women. Uh, It's all middle-class white Mm. women. Um, And they seem to have it's sorted they have lives wrapped up wrapped around their little fingers and um and i hate it <laughs> i absolutely hate it and it, it creates a huge amount of insecurity in me and etc etc but um what i wanted to ask really is about how when you were first pregnant with with esme what were you seeing around you it was very white very middle class everyone seven years ago had this really awkward bob everyone had this bob with like highlights in it bloody horizontal stripes and <laughs> like push chairs almost close to two grand that was all you ever saw um and where I'm from in Brixton the motherhood that was peddled to black girls was the mother and baby unit it was a black woman on the doll it was a black woman who a guy had left her. It was all of that. There's a brilliant moment in the book where you talk about your search for the for the perfect buggy, for your bugaboo, and the lady who you buy it from seemed to be surprised at who she was selling it to. Mm-hmm. She wasn't expecting to be selling it to a young black woman. Mm, yeah. Um, and how important did you feel like those sort of status symbols were in terms of the right brand of XYZ um, during your pregnancy? Oh, I felt that my entire life because a bit like we were talking about at the beginning, Windrush, it's always put your best visible foot forward. Like my granddad till this day is like, oh, if you don't have a pound in your pocket, no one should know it. And so I always find it hilarious how like the richest white men in the world wear the same fucking outfit like they roll out of bed looking dusty and musty and I'm like (laughs) hold on here are some young black kids spending their last on like air maxes or this that and the other and I mention it in the book it grinds my gears when the immediate reaction to that is oh these kids are wasteful or they're trying to be cool no there is a generational link to us having to look our best at all times because again the hope is that if you appear to be someone of a certain status you're not going to get stopped by the police you're not going to get racially harassed people are going to think you have your shit together so i felt that energy since i was a kid so pregnancy it just became it went kaboom I was like, okay, even down to the bottle I use for Esme, it's just like, oh my, it doesn't stop. But the labels thing is really important because I remember it being very important in my childhood and I come from a working class background that kind of made good as well. And there's a really strength in that. My mum's doilies being everywhere and the the antimacassars and the plastic on everything. Like, for God's sake, take it off. We're sweating ourselves. We can't actually sit on this stuff. And I recognise remembering as a kid going, you know, I wanted to go home and wash off the brownness. 
I can't bleach myself. Well, I can bleach yeah. myself technically, but it won't go well. Um, <laughs> we, we've heard all those stories. Um, but one of the things you can achieve is clothing. Mm. One thing that you can do is have a status symbol that yeah. you wear or a, a degree of polish that actually mm-hmm. allows you access or allows you ease or comfort. And, you know, I appreciate my experience is not going to be the same as your experience mm. at all. But I also feel very strongly that there is a community in a harmonising that actually mm. all people of colour, all, all the people that felt other yeah. can recognise. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really strong. But what's uh, what you've been saying and also in the book is your reference to Desmond's. Which, <laughs> yeah. which I know seems really... But I've already mentioned this before on the podcast. I'm obsessed with Desmond's because it was the first representation of a people of colour family mm. that argued and got on and loved each other yeah. and were funny yeah you know yeah. and you had all of that in one mix and I thought well that's my, my mad family they're all yeah. like that yeah and so the representation was super important I mean I feel real sort of reference to the black community because mm. as a kid that's all I saw I didn't yeah. see any Asian people the Asians were very good at um, integrating we hid in plain sight I mean yeah you've eventually you've got the Kamars at number 42 mm. but actually still how much representation of Asianness is there Exactly. Um, you know, and, and I don't need to take this away from blackness because yeah. I, I also recognise that I feel that I have had an easier experience than mm. I would have if I was black. And yeah. I recognise that. Yeah. And you know what? That's It's really touching to hear you say that because I'm constantly having to remind people that even other communities of colour are steeped in anti-blackness. Some, they're like, well, I know I've got problems, but at least I'm not that. Like, honestly, like black is really the bottom of that pyramid and so this is not to say that atrocities haven't happened to anyone who is other but there is a certain spiciness reserved for those who are black and that's why I try not to use the term POC if what I mean is black because it's not all one and the same and we the black community seem to be the last of all the POC communities to work out how to finesse this system or to make something for us, by us and keep it that way. I feel like we are the last to work that out and it drives me up the wall. Why is it we are still so dependent on a a, a system based on white supremacy helping and healing us? You know, I don't have the answers, but I know what I see and how much it annoys me. Would you mind um, giving us a little definition of what a baby mother is? Yeah, when I was a kid, gosh, I think you can find it on YouTube now. There was actually a TV show called Baby Mother. Was it a TV show or a film? And it was like, baby mother is how you would describe a woman who perhaps isn't with the father of the child. It's a very throwaway comment. It's like she's not... It's like the motherhood version of slag really it's that cutting especially Mm. in the black community if a man refers to the mother of his children as that you know they've got beef you know there is a disconnect there if a woman says that about another woman you know it's a term of disrespect in black british terms baby mother is like the mark of the beast and so yeah yeah, it's (laughs) it's interesting isn't it the idea of mother and in inverted commas, whore, it's kind of these two binaries. I usually, usually, we're one, we're unfortunately told that we're one or another. Yeah. And it sort of blasts that binary, doesn't it? Of, yeah. of being both at once. And like you say, a beast. Like yeah. Some sort of mythical creature. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because my view of Baby Mama is the man that couldn't stick it. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Thank you. That's yes. my view of Baby Mama. So I. I have a very different viewpoint of it. I'm like, you're a useless dead-end man. And I appreciate that's not always the case. But that's, I'm afraid, the impression that it gives of me. You couldn't, you couldn't hold down a relationship. This woman recognised you're an idiot. So you're not together anymore. This is it. This is it. And that's how I've always seen it. But there has been an, an awful lot of responsibility for black women to hold it all together. Oh, you know, even if that man is trash, just keep him to say you have one. One of the common things I hear from my friends and vice versa is you're having trouble with a guy or he's cheated even. And then your grandma or your aunt will be like, yeah, but did he hit you? Oh, just forget it then. So there's that. 
And so especially when that word came up, like the 19s, between the 60s and the 80s, for a black woman to say, like, I'm going to do this by myself, mind blowing. And of course, made people feel uncomfortable. And it, all the negative positioning is on the woman. And yeah. yeah. Which, of course, you grew up in. You grew up in a, a single mother household. Yeah. And so did you definitely feel that there was a lot of pressure put on your mum to stay with your dad or that she was treated differently because she was a single mum? No, my mum is really lucky. Her situation was really rare because her parents have always built this land of protection around her. As the years went on, of course, there were talks of, well, why didn't you just stay with Richard, who was my dad? Because he then went on to be really successful and get married and all of that. And so I have no doubt that she probably struggles with that internally of, of what could have been. But I didn't ever see her as a baby mother. My dad never referred to her as that and so I think that's what made her kind of out of bounds whereas kids I went to school with people I was friends with their mothers were in the community knowingly referred to as baby mothers and that was another unusual thing being raised pretty much for some time by your grandfather yeah and having that kind of real paternal figure obviously by your dad's presence was very much felt as well but with but really growing up with your granddad seems like a very unusual um arrangement so unusual even in the black community that was that was different and like him being the only guy in the playground or coming to parents evening so 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 strange but it's all I knew so I just thought like I was getting a really good deal because he was the only person in my friendship group um, who cared for me wasn't stressed or wasn't um, consumed with something other than my schoolwork or what I'm eating for lunch or like that was his sole focus for almost 10 years and in some ways now I'm still his sole focus today and so yeah that, that bit is rare but I wanted to really highlight that to um, knock on the head that, you know, black communities lack fathers or lack parental figures. It's like I've been raised by a man my whole life and now my husband is that man. Like, I can't wash up for shit. I don't separate (laughs) the clothes. Like, I don't do any of that. And I laugh because I'm like, you've basically just ended up with granddad, which is so funny. Um, (laughs) Sounds pretty ideal to me. (laughs) But I wanted from the very beginning of that book for stereotypes to be knocked on their head. Yes. That's basically. what I particularly enjoyed about your referencing of, is it, may I pronounce it, is it Baudet? Baudet. Baudet, Baudet, So, And I love the fact that not only is he heavily referenced in the book, but in a really positive way. Because yeah. part of what he's doing is trying to get you out of your presumptions and assumptions of what black men should be doing. Yes. And part of his role is, you know, I am going to be here. I don't need to be your problem or your worry. You've got enough going on to be worrying about being a, being a black woman. You go yeah. and be your best black woman self, and I'm just here. Yeah. And I and thought that was a lovely thing. And I'm not making any of that up. Like, of course we argue. We have hot arguments. But he is such a committed dad and partner and friend that I was like, no, that needs to be in there. This book wouldn't have even seen the light of day if not for him, because he controls the atmosphere of our house. He, like, gets the kids in order whilst I'm just spazzing out all the time. And so, it to me, I don't know if I've got lucky or if the stereotype is just really heavily sold. Because I'm like, come on now. I had a great granddad, I had a great dad, now I've got a great dude. Something's not adding up here. It's not adding up because the world constantly tells me these black men don't exist. But I've had three out of three. So... <laughs> I I don't know what to tell you. And I I really, I really, even though the book is clearly about black motherhood, its second strength is uplifting black fathers and black men, for sure, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're going to be raising one as well. I know, I know. (laughs) does Does that feel different to raising girls? Yeah, yeah. Just the fear that consumes me about my son already is so different. Like, if we had had another girl, we would still be living in London. 
I'd have been like, oh, you know, I, I did it. But the aggressive narrative around black British boys and about how they're troublesome or disruptive and then once they're out of school, this pull to gang culture and knife crime and then if you're lucky enough to get them past that bit, um, being stopped by the police, I am, I am, I'm not going to stop worrying about RJ till I die, basically. And I'll probably stop worrying about Esme about 25, 30 I'll be like, oh, you'll be all right, love. <laughs> but him, like, he could be 40, 50 years old. I'm just going to be thinking, oh, is he going to turn his music down in his car if he sees the police? Is he going to think a situation through? Like, say, a white woman drops her purse. Babe, you don't be the one to pick it up and say, no, 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 no. Is he going to remember all of those things? So for me, I know it's not the popular opinion, but I've, I found raising a black boy to be so fear-inducing. And he's too. He's got such a hot temper and he's really stubborn. And I'm already a bit worried. I'm like, oh, guy, are you really... Is this going to be like your personality going into reception? Because that is how early a teacher will write you off and put it on paper that you are disruptive or not listening when the word she would use for a white child would be highly spirited or boisterous. I was reading an amazing article about how black children often, they score very highly on school entry tests. Yeah. yeah, they've been supported very much by their parents and, and are very well educated at that level. And so they are higher than their Caucasian peers. And then, unfortunately, it starts to decline once they get to school, which you would think would be the opposite. You're like, you've started off clever. Why would you plateau? And it's the, for me, it's the negative connotation. It's them not being paid attention to. One of my mates, he's like almost 40 and he only got tested as dyslexic three years ago. So you've gone through your entire school career with someone literally telling you to sit in the corner with a D on your hat when really you had a very real problem. And so it's one of the many reasons that if black people can afford it, I heavily advocate for private education. I am firm in promoting that for black people because a bit like status symbols and the clothes you wear, if you get the chance to have a voice in the room of your child's education, you're probably going to have to pay for it. And if you can do that and not lose sleep, please do. And that's so crazy. Before kids, I would have been like, I would have vomited at the thought that I would champion private education over state. But I hand on heart feel like black kids just get swallowed by the state. Swallowed. Mm. And my peers, my black peers who did go to private school are flying and mm. they know they're black. But because they've been raised in a space where their voices matter, even if it's just because their parents paying for it, they have such an aloofness to the harshness of the world. They're like, oh, no, I'm going to go into this interview and kill it. Do you, do you see what school's on my CV? Like, ah, that is really hard to pull off with state education. It makes me think about when you and Bode first got together <laughs> and his, because his upbringing was very different to yours in Nigeria and he had his private education yeah. and actually wasn't necessarily fully aware of the racism that you had oh, experienced growing up in the UK. Is that is that right? Yeah, oh, he drove me crazy in the early days because I would come home and, and be upset about something and he would borderline say like, babe, is it in your head? yeah that's hard <laughs> and like he's as black as me and I just used to get so enraged I'd be like what are you saying but he was a black man raised in the majority he's just like oh, where I come from these things don't exist because we are the many and any issue I have with you it's because of your personality or what you've done to me not the color of your skin so he's come to this country at what 17 19 years old completely unaware He's just like, I'm a king. I don't understand these microaggressions of which you speak. And it's not until our daughter had that moment in school where that white kid refused to play with her that he cracked open. He was like, oh, God. this is Not only is this a real thing, he's admitted that he's going to have the discomfort of watching his children navigate situations he will never. Mm. 
you know he will he he can't reverse time he'll never be a 16 year old boy fearing that he's going to get pulled over by the police it's not going to happen it's not going to happen and so in those moments now he heavily leans on me he's like right you know what's going on here help me because i will just charge in there with my african man self and probably ruin all the stuff you and your mates are working for because i'll i'll say something that could be understood as oh no don't worry about these black british people they're chatting shit it's amazing how privilege protects us at so many different levels doesn't it his privilege of growing up in a black facing community sorry wrong sort of weather black facing in that sense i mean the people you represent you know you look at you look at what you are yeah if i don't like you it's because your personality sucks not because (laughs) not not because actually i don't like you because of your color being the problem yeah and so his privilege of that then coming here he's had to break that down now because actually it doesn't help weirdly you, you know, for him it helps him sail through life I sail I, you know, he's still yeah. a black man in the UK I'm not suggesting he yeah. sails through life but you know, his children that must be quite hurtful for him to have to break down that my kingness isn't going to be replicated in my queens yeah and he was he, I, would, I would use the term depressed he was depressed about it for a while for a while and then when we went to look at certain private schools i then noticed how all the black names on the walls or pictures of kids all these kids were nigerian and it's like a light bulb went off i was like that makes so much sense to me because where bode is from in nigeria like private education is the standard so of course even though i live in this really white village all the black kids go private school of course they do because you know that's what their parents believe is best and it's our relationship has just really changed due to these things that affect all black people but we've really had to learn and grow together because in the early days it was tough I was thinking about the many masks black people have to, especially black women, have to um, put on in order to protect themselves because of assumptions. Like you were saying in school, that people might assume that a kid's being um, disorderly or unruly if they're black. And I was wondering whether Bode has had to change or temper his behaviours yes in order to to get along in that same way yeah completely he's just resigned but he used to work in the tall height industry which is ridiculously undiverse and he had a run-in with an old boss i think it was at a christmas party so everyone's really drunk and really leery and i think the boss said something akin to like oh and you you know you'll think you're so big and so great and then was like i bought him this really lovely watch and the boss was like oh but we all know your watch is fake and like yeah and like he's the he's the only black man in that workspace and to have been come to have been come for so publicly it really really hurt him and i saw a change in the way he worked and he no longer like went to pubs with them after work or whatever and he i've definitely seen him have to reorganize himself as the years go on because 
the way he moved in Nigeria. You just can't move here. It could actually be seen as more problematic. You being so confident could be misconstrued and you could annoy your boss who will say something like your watch is fake, but we know what is underneath there. It is a black man doing well. It is a black man and they would say things to him like, oh, we all know you don't need this job because your wife is doing really, really well. And it's like, you, if it was a white guy, you wouldn't care about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't care. But it's the fact that a black man has dared to do better, maybe better than you. It's terribly offensive. And so he, when he goes out now, there are certain things he won't even wear, which is really annoying to me. Um, but I understand that that's the way he's had to become for an easier life, so to speak. It's very sad, getting smaller, taking up less space. Yeah. It's the pervasive influence, isn't it, of, of knowing your place? Yes. That has been, you know, taught us for years and years and years. And my mum runs around sometimes like she's some sort of queen. And I'm like, <laughs> where, where is this from? And, and, and I just, like, because I, I, I get quite anxious. And, I, you know, and, she, and she was always telling me off when I was younger, going, do not be a show-off ever. Do yeah. not p- pull those peacock feathers up because you, you, you put yourself above a parapet, your head will get blown off. Okay, yes. You are polite, you're respectful, you know your place. Yeah. And I think yeah. that doesn't necessarily... I mean, this is the thing about you know, um, just not wearing the watch or not wearing the yeah. clothes because actually you are a target or you are viewed differently. Yeah. And particularly in reference to the trope of the angry black woman. Yeah. Um, I felt like that, it was heartbreaking, I found actually, the chapter about giving birth to your first child. Yeah. It was beautifully written and affecting, and thank you for sharing it so honestly. What you say is that you had been told by friends to be careful to maintain compliance at all times because it would directly affect your care. Yes. If you were pushy, fought for what you wanted, making, in inverted commas, a fuss in any way. Yeah. And, I, and I sort of see that sort of playing out in wider life as well. Yeah. But, but most dangerously in the hospital. Yeah. And that's not new because we've already been doing that, just going about our day-to-day lives. But it becomes really heightened when in, it's a life or death situation. Whenever you're in hospital, you know, unless you've just broken an arm, but childbirth can still be really dangerous. So I was fearful about putting a foot wrong, upsetting someone, and then that directly affecting my care. The reality is, given the black, all the black women I've spoken to now, some of them said nothing and still were treated horrendously. Hmm. Because alongside the whole don't make a fuss, there is the the idea that black women don't feel as much pain. So you can sit and labour for 14 hours with no pain medication because, you know, there are books and research that doctors have, have rolled out for years saying, oh, those black girls, they don't really need it. And again, that has a historical lineage to it. Black slaves were constantly operated on for fun or for testing with no anaesthetic. That was just what it was. And so when we're talking about childbirth for black women in Britain, I think I know two black women who had easy births, two. And I know a lot of black women. And when I had Esme, I didn't have mummy friends, so I thought I was one of one and that it was just a really bad situation for me. As time has gone on and those embrace stats have come out, I'm like, oh, no, this is a real problem. This is a real problem. And so, yeah, uh, uh, but that idea of compliance has followed us forever. You mentioned the embrace stats there and they were demonstrating, and tell me if I'm wrong, that there's an increased risk of maternal mortality. Yes. And there's an increased risk of stillbirth or the child being born having some sort of medical problem. Yes. And we didn't get the data around the babies until we tried to get a petition to Parliament. And then within the response, they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, your kid has a 50% chance more dying in the first 26 days than white babies. So what that made me think is, because the excuse for so long has been black women are more at risk of dying because of um, diabetes, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, all that stuff. So what's the health issue with a newborn baby? Someone please tell me. 
what's gone wrong have they got heart disease what's up no one can explain that no one's willing to have that conversation and i know many women that if they were okay their black babies have come out brain dead or have severe disabilities i have a friend who had who was cut from her top to her bottom with no anesthetic what yeah 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 and i'm just like come on come on Mm. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Absorb that for a second. Um, with, with um, and then with your second birth, it seemed to be less traumatic. Yeah. And I wonder whether that was based on the knowledge that you had received after your first birth, um, and a sense of what you wanted and more con- control in the room. It was knowledge and maybe a tiny bit of power. By that time, I had like a solid career. Um, I was respected in the space of diversity and inclusion. And I had the fact that I almost died the first time. So from the minute the new hospital saw my notes, they were like, oh, this one cannot die on our watch. What needs to happen for you to have the best experience ever? They followed my birth plan to a T, but that's what should have happened the first time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I understand that they had to make an apology to you. The hospital had to make yeah. an apology for the care that they'd given you. Yes. Because you know, I think there, there is, and this is awful, and I just want, that's the reason I wanted to say that, was that there is sometimes this sense that, oh, people just feel like that. They're not actually being treated differently. Yeah. They just think they are. They've got a chip on their shoulder. It's them. No, it, it genuinely isn't. Yeah, this was actually a, a failure of care. Yeah, across the board. Um, And not just carers in, like, them operating on me or whatever. Even when I was being rushed down for the C-section with Esme, the surgeon said, well, can we hurry this one along? Because I was meant to be home a few hours ago. So it's just... So now I'm lying in hospital three weeks into intensive care. I cannot see my newborn. And all of those things are racing through my head. I'm like, you were in a hurry. What did you do or not do? Are you the reason I'm here? So, you know, all, it, it, and, and it can send you somewhat insane. And Bode was very um, adamant that we, you know, take it to court and do all of that. I have a family member who have tried to legally fight the NHS and it is an arduous task. And I was like, I'm not even in the mental space for all of that. So I'm going to leave that here. I do think that being able to write a book like this that is me suing them that is my you know that is my champion moment because now black women have a physical thing where they can be like well candy said so how are we going to make sure that doesn't happen to me and that's my only like silver lining of that situation yes and it had a big effect on your mental health afterwards your birth with esme yeah do you think that black mothers are um at higher risk of mental health problems after birth yeah completely if you take into consideration the lack of care all of the stereotypes you're already trying to dismantle whilst pregnant you're of course going to pull that into your mothering experience but i i want to be careful with that because i also think black women are more likely to be flagged up for mental health issues so i didn't put this in the book and body did ask oh why didn't you but after giving birth to Esme, I was in so much pain during being induced. They had me under, under mental health watch. And for Esme to be discharged the next day, Bode had to go to Croydon County Court and sign documents to say that Esme will be released into his care primarily because during childbirth, it seemed as if I was not in my right mind. Like, wow. In, wow. You know, mm-hmm, I'm giving mm-hmm. birth. It's induced labour for 19 hours. I'm strapped to a bed and I can't eat or drink. Of course I'm going to go crazy. But the fact that in that moment they're mentally assessing me, there's a disconnect there, which I think, considering the rates at which black people are detained under the Mental Health Act, it's not weird for me to say that we're a little too heavy-handed in that yes. area. 
Interesting. Yeah, there's a sort of a double-edged sword there, isn't yeah, there? Completely. Of, of actually people being more potentially more vulnerable because they've been treated badly, um, and uh, and various other things. But also that that people can come down too heavy-handedly because they're being assumed to be mad, yeah, or not in their <laughs> right mind, or or danger. Yeah, that's really tough. Mm. What a tough double-edged sword that is. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned the names of your children. Yeah. Um, Esme and RJ, which is you know, lovely. And I think what was interesting was the conversations you were having in the book about what are we going to call my kids? Yeah. And what the relevance of a name means and what is attached to it. Yeah. Would you mind sort of taking us through what you were sort of working through there? I was already thinking about them sending out their CVs or however we're going to do it by the time it comes. And for some reason or another, whoever's reading the CV or the computer automatically rejecting it because it cannot pronounce the name or finds it too ethnic sounding or... And I want to be careful here because I have friends with names like this, but the Laquishas, the Tanishas, the, you know, names that the white community often references ghetto... I was really, I ha, uh, not just me, all of my black friends are really careful about the names we give our children because we don't have the ease of just drinking our children as they are now. You're always trying to get ahead of the game. And I'm like, I'm trying to make sure that a bit like me, Candice Brathwaite, they thought a little Scottish girl was going to turn up. And <laughs> I know for sure that that's why I got so many interviews and then perhaps even got jobs because of my name. And so I, I really wanted to include that in the book because it seems so, it seems almost vacuous. Oh, a name? How are you going to dedicate a whole chapter to... No, it is so important, especially when I remind people that even my last name, Brathwaite, is not my name. Yeah. That is not my name. That is more than likely the name of the slave owner who owned my ancestors. That is not, it's not my name. And that's why I reference that powerful moment in Roots where Kunta is being whipped because he won't accept his new name. He, he does not want to be called Toby. And I'm trying to show people how there are still elements of Kunta in how we raise our children. Yeah, yeah. And a and, uh, very different story, but your family name is different as well, isn't it, Anand? Uh, yeah, well, my, my dad arrived at, in 1971, I think, at the airport, and he got told he could choose between four Asian surnames. He could have Patel, Shah, yeah, he could have Patel Shah Singh or Taylor. He couldn't have Makwana, which is my original um, surname. So, so uh, yeah, so we're all Patels, because that's just the umbrella term from the area that we came from. Uh, and that's why there's so many Patels and Shahs yeah. and Sings and Taylors in the UK, because often their, their surname was removed and given another one. And Naomi has a similar issue yeah, with her so, surname. Yeah, my, so my yeah, fa Jewish family came mm. over with the name Schwartz, was told you can't have a Jewish German name. So you've got, you got Sheldon or you've got Shelton, take your pick. And it's, and it's funny, isn't it? You don't think, it's never sort of, I've never really thought about it before until thinking about the surname of my children. Yeah. Because uh, I, I haven't changed my name to my husband's name. And I'd, I'd always imagined that we would have a double-barreled name or, you know, somehow we'd squidge them together or they'd have my name. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, but then we, sure. <laughs> but then we were th thinking, but it's a made-up name. So yeah. what, what, relevance, what relevance does it have? And it's such a complicated, names are so complicated, aren't they, when you think about your heritage and you think about, but it's my, fa but it's my family name, but what yeah. does that mean if it's made up or if it comes from a traumatic place? Yeah. It's tough. Completely. And even me now, during lockdown, I've been trying to use like those DNA websites to like trace my ancestry and it's been bloody hard. It's been so hard and I keep coming up short and the, the general pattern is the names change so quick that, like, it's hard to just make those links. And so it showed me how important and powerful talking about the history of names with people is, for sure. Your book covers lots of themes. I mean, I appreciate yeah. the overarching thing was sort of parenthood or motherhood um, specifically, but actually there's a lot of pleasure and a lot of joy in it yeah. and a lot of happiness. 
Yeah. Um, and a lot of affection for family and a lot of a pleasure in the relationships you're having, which allows you to move through some really quite shocking or unpleasant um, traumatic events. Yeah. So you know that you, you have a background of happiness and love that seems to just follow you through. Yeah. And I was just trying to think about um, you as a young person and now, um, sort of what were your great pleasures as a young person oh. and then now? My oh, cycling, and it still is a great pleasure of mine. My granddad taught me how to cycle, and my dad was obsessed with cycling. So maybe that's why it's still something that I really enjoy. And you know what? It's so funny you would talk about joy, because my dad, for all his limitations, he was never shy about enjoying the finer things in life. And so I think, by proxy, nor am I. Yeah. Like, he would drive some of the most ridiculous, flashiest cars. And I'd be like, Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> but <laughs> even though he had his limits in what he could do and where he could work, he enjoyed really great sunglasses and exotic holidays. And so does my granddad. And I think from them both, I'm learning that as, as a black woman, I deserve that. You know? Yeah, and one of the strong things that really comes across on your Instagram, for example, is your joy in clothes and enjoy in uh, shoes. shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's so nice to see it. It feels almost, I mean, maybe this is, I don't know, too over the top, but it feels almost sort of radical, do you know what I mean? I love seeing the self-worth and the self-love of I deserve this. I keep thinking about like money and feminism generally as well. Yeah. But um, but that, you know, that should we feel guilty for wanting, you know, like material things? But it makes me feel like it's a fucking feminist act. (laughs) It's like, oh, I've earned earned this money or I'm going to choose to spend this money how I wish. And this makes me feel good. And, you know, I only learnt that it was radical when I was being trolled and someone, someone must have wrote somewhere, God, I liked her so much better when she was poor I was like well you're never gonna like me again sweetie because we're not going back there and why is it especially black women can only be adored when there's trauma or struggle or a fight you know why can't we write about lipstick and Chanel and all of those things and so for me clothes yeah getting dressed oh it's it I don't know why, but it's almost like a fantasy to me. It's just really interesting for me because obviously you've come from a background where you had to put your best foot forward and had to dress for success. And now you have that success, yet the dressing is for you, not for the success. Yeah, completely, completely. I'm at a point in my career where I don't feel like I need to buy a new handbag to go to a meeting. Oh, no, never. And one of my favourite compliments is when I turn up somewhere and people are like, are you going to a party afterwards? Like, you've really... I'm like, yeah, the, the, the party is my life. The party is my life. And I don't want my best outfit to be in, like, a, a, a casket. Like, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's all that saving for a rainy day, isn't it? It's oh, all just like... so uh, rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that. I hate... I am literally the person that, like, wears a Chanel handbag, literally just to go to Tesco. And everyone's like, what is she doing? And I'm like, listen, especially for anyone that was classed as other POC, black people, we are long overdue this moment of just doing great shit or just feeling good. So I'm not going to wait till I've got a court date or a wedding to pull out a certain dress or a certain outfit. These are the things that bring me joy every day. I Am Not Your Baby Mother is published by Quercus Publishing and is available to buy from all good bookstores. Candice is the founder of Make Motherhood Diverse, an online platform and Instagram account to provide visibility for all the types of mother you can possibly think of to stand tall, proud and heard. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoyed this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and gives the series a boost. Give us five stars, you lovely lad. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course... Pleasure. Pleasure.